Welcome to Rocket Talk, the Tour.com podcast, described this evening by some as a combination of Rachel Maddow meets Stephen Colbert, but for science fiction and fantasy. I am joined tonight by the editors of Speculative Fiction 2014, Renee Williams and Sean Duke. Renee is a blogger at Lady Business and Strange Horizons, a staff member at Archive of Our Own, and an unabashed fan of Bucky Barnes, as portrayed by Sebastian Stan. She's also a dominant tumblerer at subverting the text. Hi, Renee. Hey. Sean is the host of the Hugo-nominated Skiffy and Fanti podcast and a new podcast called Totally Pretentious. He's also the blogger in residence at The World in the Satin Bag. He's a graduate instructor studying Caribbean literature and science fiction. And according to Twitter tonight, he also likes Bucky, which is going to make this an awkward podcast. Welcome, Sean. <laughs> Thank you very much. So... Let's just begin at the obvious place, which is that the only thing similar about the two of you is that you both love Bucky Barnes, sidekick of Captain America. Um, we've got other things in common. A small amount of things. I'm sure. We, right? Um, yeah, but we both like superheroes? Yes. But I think, yeah. do you guys like Bucky Barnes for the same reason, or do you think it's for different reasons? Probably for, I don't think that Sean really cares about who Bucky Barnes makes out with. I don't think he. Well, that Are... is not entirely true, Renee. Uh, if Bucky Barnes and Captain America were making out, I would probably find that very enjoyable. I could give you some Rex. I'm just saying. <laughs> Bring it. <laughs> Excellent. Like, the Bucky Barnes that, that I grew up with was kind of lame. In the, I mean, he dies in the comics, and I, I think he probably comes up in some of the many Marvel, you know, expanded universe crap that's gone on over the years. But, like, he was not – I don't remember him as being a terribly significant part of my Captain America fandom in the comic books. And now it's, like, all people talk about on the internet, Renee. Like, what is going on with this dude? It was – you can just blame Ed Brubaker, I think. His Winter Soldier arc. It's – pretty great i don't know if you've read it there's actually a, a trade with all the stories together and that's where the mcu pulled from when they made the captain america movies it's very emotionally affecting it's a very sad sad backstory where does your attachment to uh l bucky come from sean uh, mostly from the films. Uh, I didn't re get into comic books again until oh, about a year, year and a half ago. Uh, I read them as a kid, but didn't really follow any of it. I watched the, the X-Men cartoon in the, the 90s, which you may remember, Justin. It was great, and if you've never seen it, you should. everybody should watch it. Uh, but so I, I didn't really come to, to really get an appreciation for it until I started getting back into comics and finding how much fun comic books were and then i watched the movies and realized what was going on and i was like this is exciting because i was getting the clues i was figuring out what was going on as a as a comics reader so that was kind of my interaction with it and it was a lot of fun actually renee would you be as into bucky barnes if it wasn't sebastian stan maybe it depends if they cast somebody who cried as good as he does would you still, would you love Bucky Barnes the same? Maybe if it was like Joseph Gordon-Levitt. <laughs> Maybe. Ooh, that would be interesting. Right? Oh, it's so specific. I, this is what I love about, about your fandom for Captain America, Renee, is that you have clearly thought about, I feel like you've already thought about this, and you already had somebody ready to go. That, like, if Sebastian Stan were to, God forbid, die before the next Captain American movie, uh, you have replaced him with Joseph Gordon-Levitt. I hope not, because they're filming it right now. So let's hope he doesn't die, because that would be very sad. It's being it's being made currently as and, we speak. And I would feel guilty. Obviously. Yes, I would be <laughs> yes. like, Justin, look what you did. Tumblr would come down on me hard. Yeah, you you would not. I think you'd probably have to go into seclusion for a while. Yeah, that's fair. So I bring up Bucky Barnes. Um, bears a little bit of relevance to Fake Little Fiction 2014, which is the anthology that the two of you have edited, uh, which which started when Jared Sharon and myself uh, did Speculative Fiction 2012, and we're now uh, a full two years removed from our editorship. And it seems like for the last couple of months on Twitter, you guys have been sort of putting this together out loud at times, um, that the Captain America has come up frequently. I know that when Renee was initially uh, tapped 
she had sort of warned us that there may be an obsessive amount of Captain America essaying included in the anthology. So let's get it on the record now. Uh, Sean, as an, as a more independent connoisseur of Captain America, uh, how many pieces of fig- how many pieces of nonfiction in this anthology touch on Captain America? Uh, in the official anthology, I think we have three. I think yeah, we have three. Right. Three. Uh, I think we have. Oh no, maybe it just it may just be two. Uh, in the in our media commentary section, there are, there are two that are on. One is on Bucky Barnes, as it so happens, and one is on uh, 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 Black Widow. So we have two, but there may be one hiding that I've forgotten. There's things with wings. The on the tyranny of evil men, which is a review of the whole whole movie of the Winter Soldier that came out last year. Then it is three. Yep. So, yeah, so, but we started with more. I think we had like five or six, and when we had, we had to stop and go, we can't. Here's the shocking part. Here's what's <laughs> going to blow everybody's minds. There was another piece on Bucky that Sean wanted to include, and I told him no. <laughs> that It didn't come from me. It came from Sean. He was like, but I want it. I'm like, no, we already have one. It was, it was pretty comical. Did not expect that to happen. Well, it ended up happening quite a lot where we would have two pieces that spoke to each other and we just, we, either you or me, we'd have to make a decision about what to cut because we couldn't have. Yeah, it happened several times. Yeah. It was awful. It was the worst. I it was really hard. Yeah. I know that was one of the things we struggled with the most was so much of what we find online these days is sort of in conversation, less with the text, but within other things that are being said online. So you'll see blog posts responding to other blog posts. And without the sort of previous blog posts, the context can be lost in some ways. Did y'all struggle with that? Well, I, I know I certainly did. There were a number of blog posts that I would, we would read them and it would become clear that, that we, we couldn't have this piece because you needed that other context or there wouldn't make sense because it would just sort of start like in media res. We're in the middle of a conversation. And so a lot of the pieces, I mean, particularly ones dealing with controversial issues, Hugo Ward stuff or whatever, uh, we, we had to pick stuff that was sort of trying, tried to represent what was the, the main issue being discussed rather than tangential discussions down the road. Uh, and that was a real problem because there were lots of great pieces, but we couldn't include them because the, without that context, they just did, they didn't make enough sense. They, they felt sort of disconnected. You, you want to add to that, Renee? No, that's, that's pretty accurate. It was, there's several pieces that have a lot of like links and references and there could have been a lot more of pieces like that because people are really writing online now is you have to be reading the people around you who are writing and referencing them to have like the full scope of the conversation. So for the purpose of an anthology like this though, um, it becomes challenging because I think it's it's sort of like a, if you could look at the, the best novel ballot for some XYZ award, it, you know, you see sequels nominated and you're kind of like, why are you nominating a sequel? It doesn't stand on its own. You know, it, it requires this previous text and it's hard to... So for an anthology like this where you're trying to pick the best and brightest, do you, do you actually find yourself often picking things that are going after the work as opposed to the larger conversation because sometimes those larger conversations require so much framing? Yeah, no. <laughs> Uh, Renee and I had a big, big, big issue with, uh, review type writing or, or even essays where they were t- discussing specific works. I mean, when we got towards the end, when we, we had to like, we had a deadline, we had to pull all of this together and, and submit what was the initial list of things we were interested in. Uh, I mean, the review stuff was the hardest because trying to pick reviews and what was, what counts as quality reviews. Uh, in particular was a problem because of the way in which reviews work. So, you know, there might be a review about some book that's really interesting and the review might be great, but if the book wasn't important in the larger conversation, we had to weigh that against stuff that was maybe more, uh, more substantial. Uh, and so that became a big issue, uh, because we ended up with a lot more content that was talking about issues or ideas or whatever uh, in the community, some stuff that was media commentary specific, so talking about a work but not necessarily a review. Uh, and then, but the further you get down the list, it became just more difficult kind of picking the work that would, that would best fit with what we were trying to do. It does look like y'all managed to include something like 20 reviews though, Renee. So how do you, 
how do you pick reviews from, I mean, I don't know, the thousands that were probably written this year and the hundreds of which I'm sure were submitted to you? Uh, how did you sort of separate the wheat from the chaff in the review section? Well, for me, it was kind of like I thought about the submissions and I thought about the books that I saw people talking about. So if, for, since I was one of the editors, I wasn't really down with including reviews of books I hadn't seen talked about because I was reading, I think, toward the end of the year, around 1,500 blogs. <laughs> and submitting stuff, my, submitting stuff myself. And so if a book wasn't being discussed and I didn't see conversations about that book, there was no reason, I didn't find there to be a reason to include that book in a review in the anthology. Which is maybe mean, but we we want the we want people to look back in like five years and go, okay, well, what books were people talking about in 2014? And if they look at the anthology and be like, what is this? That's going to be really confusing. They're going to be like, this, what is this book? I've never even heard of this book before. And we don't want we didn't want that to happen. I I feel like we got several reviews that the books will probably still be discussed in you know five or ten years. And anyway, that was really my goal. And, and we certainly had some arguments because when we had the initial list, there were a couple reviews of books, which the reviews are great, but the books themselves, it was sort of like, how much is this in conversation? There were some great reviews last year of books that actually came out the year prior, and that was another consideration we had to have. You, you, are these really in conversation with the other reviews? Are they in conversation with what people are talking about in terms of books or movies or whatever? Uh, and so we, I mean, I, Renee and I had a a few arguments. Yeah, no, there were some, things. there were some, not really arguments about re- like what reviews to include because of the book, but mostly arguments about the fact that Sean kept being like, "This is a great review." I'm like, "This is so academic that I'm having an anxiety attack." Well, there was that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, well, that's like, that's the best part about putting an academic and a uh, you know um, someone who's not an academic together because I think, anti-academic. Yeah, together exactly. In a room. We had that exact same conversation, right? Are we trying to identify the best writing or sort of like the best writing that also seems relevant to the larger conversation? It's like a really hard thing to tackle. I think we were lucky because it was the first year, you know, we included reviews of like A Dance with Dragons and Prince of Thorns, which weren't out that year. But because there had never been a spec fic collection before, we felt like we could we could pull from the year previous and it wouldn't be uh, it, it could be a work that was out the year previous and it wouldn't feel out of place. But since... Uh, we had an, an anthology last year. Maybe it's a little bit harder to do that again this year. It seems like you guys did a pretty good job. I mean, we've got reviews here of like, you know, the the Goblin Emperor, which of course has been nominated for several awards. You know, the Vandermeer trilogy, which of course has been hugely uh, hugely successful, and the Three Body Problem, and um, and a few others, and some that maybe aren't as. I mean, I see sort of like this. Um, you know, Zero Sum Game by S.O. Huang and, uh, you know, certainly Mavesh Murad's uh, Under the Radar Review. I mean, those are definitely lower profile releases. Well, the S.O. Huang review was mine. And that really just happened because Anna and Thea came to us and were, were like, guess what? You get to include one of your pieces in the anthology. This is a new tradition we're starting. And I'm like, perfect. I'm terrified. And that's just the one that I chose. Out of all the, the things I had written. The Sultana's Dream one, though, I mean, there were a couple of her reviews, uh, Mavesha's reviews, that w- that I, I initially suggested, and I think Renee might have suggested one of them, too. Uh, and my interest in that was, uh, you know, the, the books being discussed, or whatever works being discussed in a year, don't necessarily have to be whatever was popular or in the, the larger conversation. It, sometimes it may be also really crucial to talk about works that have been left off of the discussion in general, which is what that entire column is about. I mean, it's called Under the Radar for a reason. Uh, and so I, I wanted to include that because I felt like this is, this is part of the project, maybe not intentionally, but to kind of give a perspective on the issues going on in the community in a review. And in this case, I, I think that review is wonderful. It also sort of exposes a work that, um, most people just don't know about, um, and probably should. So, so let's talk about that a little bit. You you say right there that the sort of the point of the anthology, and as someone who um, brainstormed this anthology idea originally, I know, I mean, I have 
a very strong opinion about what I think it does. But the great part about it is every year we get two new editors um, to, to sort of put their own spin on it. And I think that's what's so cool about it. So I'm fascinated to hear, you know, from both of you a little bit about what you think the purpose of this anthology is, what it serves. And uh, I think I'd like Sean to talk a little bit about what it serves from maybe an academic perspective and then maybe Renee from, from a more fan perspective. Uh, feel free to comment on each other's spheres, but I'm, but I'm just curious about it as your sort of your background's informant. Well, finish-wise, I think about the side of fandom that I'm on, which is the transformative works, um, fanfic and fan art, and how we get left out of the conversation a lot, right? The This SF history that we're not really a part of, like we're divorced from it. When my friend Claire wrote an actual an actual really great essay about this on Lady Business a few years ago, um, the history of Western media fandom, where they talk, she talked about the split in the the 60s, I think, with Star Trek, where the women fans just went off and did their own thing because of the rampant sexism. And so now we get this really interesting split between the two communities that, like, there's obviously, like, this fan work on one side, and then there's, like, this publishing on the other, and it feels really, there's really, like, a really hard line to me being on, being in both. And so, for me, this is about building kind of a finished history that melds both sides together instead of keeping that hard divide between them. Yeah, that was something I I really loved because I mean I'm I'm vaguely familiar with Tumblr. I have a Tumblr which has been dead for a while. Uh but I've been on there and I know that there's a lot of interesting stuff going on there. And so the stuff that was brought to the table from Tumblr, I mean some of those things were incredible. Uh, I mean, I believe our Bucky Barnes piece, isn't that originally from Tumblr? I think she posted it on Tumblr. I'm just really not sure because so many people cross-post because a lot of people okay. don't take Tumblr seriously. So a lot of people cross-post their work elsewhere because the, you know, Tumblr's for teenage girls. And, you know, have some things for teenage girls. It's no, it's no good and not worth not worthwhile. <laughs> That's hashtag subtweet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But but certainly something that that uh, I mean I didn't really hold that view when we started, but it it if I had it would have been ver- firmly destroyed based on the kinds of things that either Renee brought to my attention or was submitted to us via our Google Sheet thingy. Um, so I mean the the that fandom side, the kind of things that came out of there were just really really just cogent media analysis in some cases. It was just really good stuff. Um, from my perspective as an academic. Uh, I mean, my field is post-colonial studies, so I'm doing things like Caribbean literature and dealing with colonialism and these kinds of things. So while that doesn't directly inform the specific kinds of pieces we get, uh, it does inform my interest in terms of uh, fandom. So things that I care about, uh, like diversity, uh, world SF, those kinds of things. Uh, and that, that certainly colored the kinds of pieces that... I ended up putting up for, I guess, like nomination, uh, when I said, these are the ones I'm interested in, Renee. And, and, and it was interesting to see because I think we came up with the lists, our individual lists separately. And when you put them together, I mean, there were different works, but they were in a lot of cases talking about similar issues, things like gender and all those kinds of things. And it was like this weird, um, I hate to use the word marriage, but it was kind of this just this melding of ideas, and so it became kind of winnowing down from that. Um, so the things that ended up informing so many of my selections were like gender concerns, uh, and those those come from uh, not specifically my academic studies, but they are something that I incorporate in my academic work. Like when I teach a literature class, I'm always intentionally injecting, uh, say, women writers in a survey course because. Typically speaking, when we teach survey courses, they're extremely male. Like if you teach American Lit, everyone's teaching Faulkner and Hemingway. Um, they're not teaching all of these other amazing writers. Um, I've taught like Octavia Butler, uh, Joanna Russ, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, they're all kinds of amazing writers. And so I do that in my academic work. And that, I mean, I think it's fairly obvious that informs my interest in fandom. And that I think shows up in the table of contents somehow. Um, it's a, it's a very, uh, I think it's fair to say it's a very feminist collection. 
Would you agree, Renee, that it is? Or am I, just... I hope it's an intersectional feminist collection. Otherwise, I don't think we succeeded. Fingers Fair crossed. Enough. Yeah. I- I've always thought about the, the, the project and the anthology is very much also from an a-, a little bit from an academic sense, which is like sort of taking ourselves way too seriously, right? But it's also sort of that moving forward for future academics or future people who want to write about fandom or even about the genres uh, or, or literature in these fields now has sort of this time capsule. And it's not like the blogs are going to necessarily go away, but it's like the internet, it's so hard to find things after they've gone. You know what I mean? If they're not on the front page anymore, nobody's paying attention. So like, this is, I feel like this is a, a really valuable time capsule to people who want to be able to look back. I mean, how cool would it be able to look back to like the 1960s and really have like this book that said, this is all the stuff people were talking about back then. Um, so I have this, this, this vision of this in like 30 years of being able to look back and saying like, this is what was important in, in 2014 as determined by Renee and Sean. <laughs> yeah. It, it, that's a problem though, because I mean, this is antho- anthology is, is just like, like a little, little finger poke into the community. I mean, and who knows what they'll be talking about in a decade or 20 years. I mean, they may look at our anthology and everything we mention in here turns out not to be important in 20 years. Um, I think that's a challenge with, with any kind of work like this. You're, you're trying to represent what was important, what was best, what was good writing at the time. But ultimately we're dealing with something massive like the internet, which there, there's just, we, we can't possibly scrape the surface. We can't even get that far where we're sort of, hindered by the size of this monstrosity uh, that we're all engaged in at this moment even. So, but who knows? Maybe it'll be really cool in 20 years. It'll be all, uh, we'll be right. Renee and I can say we predicted the future of genre fiction. I think it's always going to be relevant. It's never going away. Yes, but who are they going to be writing Slash about in... 20 years. I mean, are, probably, is the, so, same, are we probably the same white dudes are writing Slash about now. True story. You think it's going to be Bucky Barnes? Well, it might be in 20 years because isn't he, he's, Sebastian Stan is like on like a nine movie gizmo, <laughs> isn't he? It always so he goes back. It always goes back to Sebastian Stan. Always. Come on, guys. God <laughs> almighty. I can't get away from this guy. Uh, I, I think uh, I think you're right, Renee. That like a lot of the things that touch on in this thing are are always going to be relevant. And even if they're not, I think it's fascinating that we thought they were relevant today. And I think that's what's 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 really valuable uh, from sort of a historical perspective. I know that when we did the anthology in 2012, sort of our theme was a little uh, uh, less formed, I think, than than they've come along in the, in the subsequent two years since then. I think Jared and I were trying to just sort of say, like, let's let's sort of take the temperature. And I think, you know, our focus tended to be on the more uh, whimsical side of writing. <laughs> in that, like, we enjoyed putting in sort of, like, very sort of clever pieces and, and, and a few attack screeds and that kind of thing that we, that we enjoyed. And I think Anna and Thea last year really seemed to focus a lot on more that uh, YA and middle grade uh, people that were writing in those sort of uh, commentary areas, uh, they they really tried to incorporate a lot more of that. I, after looking at your anthology, like I think I have an idea about your theme, but I would be curious about what you think your theme is, Renee. That's a really hard question. Did, Sean, did we have a theme? I mean, I know we said that we wanted to focus less on publishing and m- more on fans. Like, obviously, publishing is relevant, but we wanted to keep it kind of aimed at fanishness, even if the people we included were also authors. Yeah, I think that's that's fair. I don't know if that was our... I mean, it was something we were thinking about, particularly given your your history, Renee. Um, I think that's what we ended up with. I just uh, don't know where we started. We just sort of just threw it all into the spreadsheet and poked at it until it made some sort of sense. But I think looking at the table of contents, it is... It is very much oriented around fandom, broadly defined, um, what fandom is talking about versus uh, any kind of other consideration. It just so happens that that intersects with a lot of other issues. Um, I mean, like the first three pieces are all specifically about fandom in some sp- sense or another. One one of them is specific to the science fiction fandom that we would traditionally talk about. 
Um, and the other two are actually about Renee's more wider fandom. Um, I mean, there's a piece on the economics of fandom, which I, I don't think is ever talked about. Uh, but so I, I think it's fair to say that it is more focused on fandom, maybe broadly defined, uh, with just a very strong feminist sort of, uh, lean, uh, intersectional feminist, I think maybe as you mentioned, Renee, but yeah. Uh, I, so I would take it a step further and I would suggest that it's about, if our writing review of this, this is what I would say, is that it is very much explicitly about what it means to be a fan. And I think that's very interesting. Uh, when you, when I frame it that way, <laughs> boy, that sounded like I was douchey. Um, it's very interesting <laughs> when I frame it that way. Um, because if you look at the pieces that you've included throughout, it, and Renee kind of touched on this earlier, that she has this belief that there's the, well, I don't, I say she has this belief, but the reality is I think it's true that there's sort of this, um, you know, it's like you have two siblings living in a room and they've put a big stripe down the middle of it that says, like, you keep all your shit on that side and I'll keep my shit on this side and we want to strangle each other tonight. Um, and that's sort of like what fandom has become with fanfic and with sort of, I guess you'd say, the publishing side of the game. And um, so I think this anthology is really tackling, like, what it means to be a fan because I think a lot of times, you know, of course we know the fake geek girl stuff and all of this, but you have pros pros, professionals, um, not writing, professionals, uh, who don't always think of themselves as fans, even though they very much are in the publishing world. And then in, on the fanfic side, you have this perception that they are sort of crazy fans, but not like in any sort of way that is um, professional in nature, right? And so I, I feel like the anthology really tackles that head on and asks those questions and ultimately maybe kind of tries to define it. I don't know. That certainly wasn't, I don't think, our intent, but it, it makes sense to read it in that, that way because it does explore the various realms of fandom. Um, and by extension, that it is about the kinds of things, the, 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 the life that one leads in these different camps of fandom. And we've got everything in here from, I mean, the Hugo Award kind of discussions and what it means uh, essentially to be a fan within that larger discussion, the sort of Tumblr fandoms. Uh, we've got, sort of, uh, there, I think there's a piece in here on fanfic. Um, so all of those different fandoms all interacting. Um, and I think that was something that whether we were conscious of it or not, we were trying to put together a list of, that would put all of these in dialogue so that it it's clear that these fandoms don't need to be considered as separate. I mean, they are separate in the, in the sense that they, they, I, they have their own little groupings, right? Like Tumblr fandom is Tumblr fandom. There's Twitter and there's all these other places, the way social media oriented groups, but, uh, they're all in conversation with each other. They're all talking about very similar things. I mean, uh, we in the science fiction and fantasy community are talking about all kinds of things like, like Captain America, et cetera. Well, the Tumblr community is having these conversations as well. They're just treating it somewhat differently. Um, so how do they interact? I think would, that's something that I was thinking about, particularly when I was putting together, uh, with Renee's help, the actual TOC, how do each piece interact with each other? So that's my response. I don't know if I have a response to this question. I mean, I guess you could read it that way. I just don't... I don't drill down enough to look at it that way. Because I'm just used to thinking of... Fandom is, as like a, like a big blob of people who are just in different communities. So, that's a nice reading. I just did not intend to... I didn't even think about it. I just sort of put the stuff that I liked... In into a file and went and, and went with it, which is probably not what people want to hear. Oh, you didn't think this through? <laughs> nope, didn't think about it at all. Just just went with what I liked. In, Sorry, guys. In your defense, Renee, I often ask authors questions like this, in which case they go into sputtering silence because they also don't an- sort of anticipate that reading of their work sometimes. But mm-hmm. I think that's that's the great part of this, of course, is that the reader will consume it and take away from it, you know, their own, their own uh, interpretation of all of it. And so I guess then, Renee, that if I asked you to actually define what a fan is, you would probably throw something at me. I would be really upset because when I tried to, when I talked about like how we're fanish in the community, like I did this right in 2013, like how do we engage as fans in this particular aspect of our fanish lives? I got, you know, stomped by the internet. So I just don't, 
I try not to define what a fan is anymore. I've learned my lesson. I don't need <laughs> I don't need a lesson in uh, why that's a bad thing because everybody's going to define um, themselves as fans and what fandom means to them in their own way. And I think that's the best way that we can all engage in defining things. Well, doesn't Scalzi, ha- he has a great piece from, I don't remember, like a few years ago, which was in response to the, the fake geek girl thing. Uh, and his response was essentially like, you know, they may only like cosplay, right? That's their geeky thing they do. They dress up as ca- character from Sailor Moon or whatever. Uh, but... That's how they engage with their own sort of micro fandom. You can go do your whatever, like your board games or whatever it is you're into. Maybe that's the only thing you're into, and that's fine. You're a fan too. You just only like X, Y, and Z, and so on and so forth. Like the, there isn't a stable definition of what a quote unquote true fan is. There's just fans. If you just love a thing and you just want to share it with other people that love a thing, that seems to me that it's just, you're just a fan. We can move on now. We don't need to, like, why are we debating about who is and is not a real fan, uh, what real fandom is? It just seems kind of silly. What's interesting about that, and I think I think that's all right, but what's interesting is that uh, fandom, as we often try to define, or being a fan as we often try to define it, is defined around sort of love of a thing, right? Um, sure. You to have an uncomfortable love of Bucky Barnes, that's fine, um, you know? It's it, comfortable for us. That it makes me yeah, un- we that, like it. Right, that it makes me slightly uncomfortable doesn't doesn't in any way change <laughs> your comfort level. And that's great. Um, but it, what's fascinating to me is that the internet has opened up this new avenue, and it's probably not new, but it's more visible now. And it's this avenue of fandom that's not built around love at all. It's built around criticism. And there are a few people in particular that come to mind who shall remain nameless on Twitter that we often interact with whose only interaction with fandom, seemingly, is to be critical of the works that everybody else sort of loves. And, like, Mm -hmm. that's their uh, way of interacting as fans. It's bizarre to me, but it is is true, seemingly, um, that, and I will edit their names out, but, you know, sort of like Jonathan McCalmont and Martin Petto, and, like, these guys don't seem to like anything. Um, But they interact with fandom in sort of this very negative way that, that somehow they really enjoy but i think that's what's so fascinating and i think kate elliott in her introduction in speculative fiction 2014 which frankly is almost worth in and of itself the price of admission Mm -hmm. um actually sort of talks about this evolving nature of fandom online and how it is um changing the way that fandom has operated for eons um have any? I think all of us sort of emerged in fandom online, right? So it's not different for us. It probably isn't. I would say it's probably not for me. I don't. I don't think I would have considered myself a fan until maybe I got to to college and started actually kind of engaging. Um, I mean, I probably was a fan before that, but I didn't really think about it. I just liked stuff. Um, I do think it's interesting, though, that. There are people who, as you say, right, that they engage, I guess, broadly defined as negatively in the community. They, they criticize stuff. They're talking about all the things that they don't like. Um, and there are even people in the community who, as well, shall be re- remain nameless, who just seem like all they do all of the time online is just like rant and rave about stuff. Uh, whoa, I, whoa. Hey, Sean, don't be throwing any stones here. I didn't specify anyone in particular that could be widely interpreted. Uh, but it seems to me that on some weird level, whether they, those people realize it or not, maybe they just, that's, that's what they love to do. They just, they really like it. That's, that's how they engage in fandom. That's how they demonstrate their love is by being sometimes not very nice people, which is a horrible thing to think about. But I don't know. It, it, it seems like you can't do that all the time. And not on some level get some sort of joy out of it, which I think is kind of the purpose of fandom. I mean, if you're, why else would we talk about Bucky Barnes if we don't like get something out of it, right? Renee, I mean, if it just made us miserable all the time, we would just. I mean, it makes me miserable quite often when I think of his backstory, but in a good way. Well, it's different. I, I mean, like you know, if if you and I had a conversation about Bucky Barnes, and at the end of that conversation, you just feel super depressed. 
because you just you just just nothing about Bucky Barnes makes you happy. I feel like you would just never want to talk about it. No, it's true. I the people who engage in fandom that way, they have some endless uh, like pools of energy that they're pulling from. I just don't see how they have energy to do that constantly. But you know, I also don't understand the people who have so much energy that they write, you know, 70,000 words of hockey RPF in two days. Those people exist too, but on the opposite end of the spectrum, but... They love too much. <laughs> they just, some people express their feelings in diverse ways, and that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, Renee, you, now you've kind of, you kind of emerged into internet fandom later. Well, I shouldn't say later. I think we all emerged sort of at the same time or similar times. But Renee, you emerged into into the science fiction and fantasy c- online community after years of not. I think I joined around 2008. Right. But prior to that, you were still involved in online fandom, just not in this part. Yes. I w- I've been online since 1994 in fandom. In my, pa- my part of fandom where you, you know, we wrap fanfic. And- That's epic. Like, I first got involved in fandom um, in a AOL.com, not like even AOL.com, like AOL, like the actual AOL. Yeah, me too, yeah. Uh, writing in a Wheel of Time forum where we'd, like, role-played as things. Wait, are you telling me that somewhere out there, there may still be, like, Justin Landon Wheel of Time fanfic? Because <laughs> I'm really into this. It exists, but, like, I'm sure it's gone. That's so um, But, uh, and I wouldn't even know where to... Th- find it but yeah no there absolutely was fanfic that i wrote um that's on wheel of time that's out there but like i took a long break in between that like 20 years almost uh between that and sort of emerging into into online fandom so i didn't really see the way that it sort of changed but in kate's introduction she talks about um, she sort of compares fandom indirectly to sort of like the court intrigue in the hellenic courts which is fascinating in that she uh she says, like, it went from this time there was, like, one or two gatekeepers, you know, who had the gatekeeper, the ear of the king, uh, as it were, Alexander the Great. They had the ear of Alexander the Great, and, like, everything went through them to get to him. And this is how uh, uh, fandom really existed for, for decades, you know? Like, if you weren't sort of connected to the key players, like, you weren't really in the center of the universe. But that when things went online, like, this fundamentally changed. Like, there is no center of the universe anymore. There are no gatekeepers of fandom. And that whole notion is totally dead. Is it totally dead? I don't think so. Not for... Well, there's an essay that we talked... That we have in the anthology, The Economics of Fandom by Sathy Press. And it talks a little bit about this concept of, like, gatekeepers. But in my side of fandom, they're definitely, like, if you're popular... And you ship the right things, and you have the right opinions. Like you have more power to, you know, shut things down. So it, I mean, there is not like traditional gatekeepers, but there is sort of some. There is the gatekeeping will morph and change, and will always be around in a different form. I think. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree. I think it's uh, there. There are gatekeepers. They just are are much more spread out there're just lots of them everywhere uh and and they don't engage in the same way that we think of as a gatekeeper would you uh, say it would be about community like not gatekeepers for like a like a like, like a like a guy rub. sitting at top like holding the door but for yeah. like different online communities like there's obviously tastemakers can often act as gatekeepers without meaning to i would think yeah i think i would think that if Gatekeeping is a little bit more fluid. Um, it can it can change depending on who's involved in the community. I feel like individual micro communities serve unintentionally as gatekeepers by determining what gets included in those communities and what does not. Um, in a broadest sense of the terms, that could be the work, that could be types of people, whatever. Um, I mean, we see that in science fiction fandom. I mean, there there are micro communities here that have already pre-selected who's allowed in the group, whether God. they explicitly say it or not. <laughs> Editing right. this was like some of the comments of some of these entries, like oh, "You're doing fandom wrong," and these people aren't real fans, and people agree. It was just, it was awful to read. <laughs> yeah, or or like reading the uh, the piece on Rue, uh, which actually includes Twitter comments in the actual piece. 
Uh, I mean, some of those comments, like I couldn't even believe that anybody was uttering those online in any capacity. But that, I mean, those could serve as the same kind of gatekeeping mechanism by determining how we're even allowed to talk about a work. I mean, granted, the, the kinds of tweets, I mean, everybody knows the root issue at this point, I think, but the, the tweets themselves, obviously, we've kind of been roundly rejected as being absurd. But that kind of thing happens all the time where people criticize the thing and then that become that sort of spreads out within a, a smaller community of people and that becomes the discourse of whatever it is we're talking about. Um, and it it's just a problem when it's, it becomes a deeper problem when we're dealing with like inclusions of people or perspectives of people, like people of color and representation. The Rue issue is precisely that. It's, it's people trying to tell us how a work should be perceived. I mean, we see this again, uh, with the Fantastic Four, right? With, uh, Michael B. Jordan being cast as, uh, the Human Torch and people had a whole hissy fit about it. Um, so, and, and to some extent, you could even make the argument the, uh, we're most likely going to be getting a Spider-Man in the MCU, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, that will be probably a white guy. We won't get the Miles Morales, which the I think a huge portion of SF fandom is clamoring for, because it's never we've never had Miles Morales. But it would be exciting to see it. So whether it was intentional on the the part of Marvel to sort of gatekeep uh, in this sense, I mean they certainly have no reason not to have Miles Morales. Uh, so the their their intent may not be to gatekeep, but on some level they may be unintentionally doing so. Yeah, no, I think you guys kind of nailed it when you said you talked about micro-communities and uh, not to mm. open up Pandora's box here, but this is sort of where the accusations of the sad puppy people is actually sort of accurate insofar as that the community of science fiction and fantasy fandom online has self-selected a certain kind of fiction. Uh, now, you could make the case that that means good fiction, or you could make the case that it means, you know, not sort of poorly, you know, poorly thought out romp adventure fiction, whatever, however it is, though. The statement is fairly accurate that we have cultivated this community that is sort of like uh, books that are nominated for the Hugos, or... Um, you know, the kinds of books that get wide reviews on book blogs that are influential in this community or uh, guests that come on podcasts like Rocket Talk, right? Um, there's no question that there is a selecting nature in there that is absolutely of a gatekeeper mentality, I think. I, I agree. Uh, my issue with, <laughs> not to get too deep into it, my issue with the sad puppy claim um, based on how I understand it, which some may disagree with my interpretation, uh, what they're, they're suggesting is that there's a deliberate gatekeeping mechanism in place where people are sort of sitting in secret saying, we're going to nominate X, Y, and Z, and we will never nominate any of that other stuff, um, more particularly the first part. Uh, the problem with that is I think that gatekeeping does exist, but it is, as I said, more fluid. So what you end up with is micro-communities that they're interested in fiction that does X, Y, and Z. And it's kind of absurd to expect people who claim to only like X, Y, and Z to then vote for A, B, and Q when that's not the kind of thing they like. Like, there are people who will say very publicly, I don't like military science fiction, All right? That's fine. They don't like it. You can't force that person to like that thing, and they're not going to vote for something they don't like. But there are people who do like military science fiction. And if they like a whole bunch of military science fiction, there was nothing stopping them from participating by saying, these are the things I loved. Uh, so I think that's the issue I have, that these micro-communities exist, but they're sort of organically creating themselves and and determining mostly uh, what they like and then just disseminating that amongst themselves. Uh, it's not the same kind of gatekeeper. It's not like as we talked about, right? This person that's sitting up top with like like a hammer and just deciding like these are the things that we determined are unacceptable and we will never let them in. Uh, I think that those communities have evolved. I mean, if you look at the Hugo Awards, what has been getting increasingly included, right? That's an evolution in the Hugo Awards. It's not like the Hugo Awards have ever been the bastion of female writers and people of color, right? That's a for the most part, a relatively recent thing with exceptions throughout history. Um, that's just a part of a certain subculture's evolution. That doesn't mean that 
that that is going to stay the same stable always i mean it could be in 10 years maybe people's a taste completely change they decide they don't like the kind of short fiction we're seeing uh being from last year's ballot perhaps maybe they decide they want something else and who knows then we'll probably have this argument again i'm sure and then there'll be secret cabals of people running around well i just disagree because i just i don't really see this as being a gatekeeper because if if there was going to be gatekeeping on like with this like with this ballot in particular there'd be a lot more dudes making out on this ballot like yeah. if we were gonna look, if we were looking at this from my perspective, what I would prefer to be on the ballot, there's like not, a, there's not enough, there's not enough gay action happening on this ballot. We need to fix it. <laughs> I'm t- so basically, what you're saying, if there was a actual social justice warrior gatekeeper yes. thing, the shit would have looked a lot different for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. That if it was up to me, like, not that I'm a well, I think I think person. I think the interesting point in all this, though, and and is sort of reinforced by Kate's introduction and some of the things that are in this anthology is this idea that that fandom is is morphing and emerging and evolving and doing all of these things constantly and that any sort of gatekeeping that's going on is a result of that evolution. And I think if you look back like maybe five years ago, uh, you know, sort of in the peak of the blog, you know, things like getting on Pat's hot list was a big deal, right? Mm-hmm. Um like those days are largely gone. Like the like the blog, the independent blog sort of influence is is gone. Um, that that part of fandom. It, I'm not saying it doesn't exist entirely, but it's not nearly as influential as it once was. And now it's sort of like I would say it's probably Twitter, right? It's sort of like this influencing crucible where things like Goblin Emperor or Ancillary Sword or um, uh, Three Body Problem, by the way, all of which you guys managed to include reviews of. Right, all made the Hugo mm-hmm. ballot. Nice work, nice predictive work. Yay! Uh, but uh, <clears throat> but that those things are like the, the the community buzzes about those on Twitter, and and that's where where that evolving fandom community and 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 influencing is happening. And it'll probably be somewhere else in two years. It'll probably be on Tumblr or it is, it's already on Tumblr. That's right. already ha- like right. that's already happening on Tumblr right now. I mean, no, not book wise. You're gonna on Tumblr. It's more visual media. And Twitter, I would think, Twitter does feel more um, geared toward text to me, even though we often, you know, kvetch about movies and stuff. But to me, like, the split is, um, Twitter is largely for books, and Tumblr tends to be more about um, things you can look at that are pretty. Kind of to wrap this up, um, what, what was this experience like for the two of you? Feel free to answer as individuals or as a or as a pair. You know, I mean, how was this? Is, is, I think it's the first thing either of you have sort of edited of a book scale. Um, so just give me give me some feelings. What was it like as as first time editors uh, working together and and all that stuff? I'm never doing it again. <laughs> with Sean or just period? Period. <laughs> I had this conversation with Anna when we were going through like the page proofs. And she was talking about, like, the rounds of Paige Bruce and all that was involved and, like, what was going to be involved in, like, working on the ebook and getting it ready. And I was just like, I'm tapping out. I'm never self-publishing. If, like, if I ever write a manuscript and want somebody to publish it, if a, like, if a publisher doesn't want me, I'm never getting published because I'm never doing this crap myself. I, this is so much work. This is so much work. I can't. You created this idea that's so much work. I don't understand. Like, who sits around and goes, hmm, I want to make a book. That's a lot of work. Let's do it. Justin, what, in, was, what in, was going through your head? In my defense, Jared did all the work. Oh, the truth <laughs> comes out. I see. I, which I've never made any bones about. Um, you know, it was sort of like I had this idea. And then I was like, hey, Jared, how do we do this? And then um, he did the vast majority of the work you know my yeah. you know my input was more like the i was like the intellectual uh, idea guy and not that jared didn't have ideas he did but you know i i give him full credit for doing the work it is a ton of work a fuck it ton of work was a good learning experience i learned a lot and i read so much like i don't i read so many pieces like toward the end of last year i was sort of at a haze um like a non-fiction haze and I 
guess I came away from this just realizing how much work actual editors do, like actual editors who edit for a living must do. Wow. Good job, guys. <laughs> I'm impressed. I feel like this is a place for a slow clap. Justin, do you have a sound effect? Can you put that in? <laughs> slow clap. Oh. Back. Uh, well, I'll agree it was a lot of work. Um, and, and that was particularly hard for me because I'm trying to get like this PhD monstrosity thing. So it's just a lot of work on top of a lot of work. So it was a lot of work and it was at times grueling, uh, because there was just so much to read. Uh, and there was so much to do after we read. However, I would do something like this again, uh, because I liked it. Uh, although I wish I had been able to offer more. Renee did do uh, considerably more than I did because Renee is far more organized than I am. Uh, and so she came up with all these like documents and spreadsheets and all this stuff. So it was incredibly organized. But I love the part about putting that together the table of contents. Like that was a blast for me. So I was thinking about how everything would talk to each other and how we could create a kind of order sort of to basically take the chaos and put it into order, like laying out a bag of snakes and, you know, putting them all straight. Um, I love that part. That was so much fun. Um, the arguments, not so much, Renee. But, well, you know, we, ha- we had a we few. Had, <laughs> fine. We, we worked through. We were professionals and we found our way to the other side. Indeed, we did. Um, you know, and I love that, uh, you know, despite the fact we come from different fandoms, I think I got, I was so excited that, with the exception of a handful of, of pieces, Renee and I really did, like, we agreed. And we, we, it just like gelled. It worked. Um, so I, I, I had a blast, even though it was a shit ton of work. <laughs> so, um, so yeah. Yeah. And I can't overstate how, like, I really feel like Anna and Faya's name should be on the front of this book too. Cause they basically held my hand through this whole process. It was, they are great. They're perfect, but yeah, they I, did good work. Yeah, they they really for two for two like baby editors. They were super helpful. Like I don't know what I would have done without their guidance since they did this last year. And it, you know the, the weird thing is people don't realize is with fifty some odd essays, you know, set, doing like fifteen short stories is not nearly as difficult. I mean, all the formatting and the linking and the footnotes and the bios and the the you know the, the headers like there's so much of that yeah. that uh, from a layout perspective and from like a you know line break perspective it's just an utter nightmare so um well congratulations to you both uh i am delighted at the final product and i think you all have uh, uh borne up well under the pressure of your of your uh, predecessors and uh welcome to the fraternity of speculative fiction editors who have uh, successfully completed their charge. And uh, speculative fiction 2014 is out when? It's in print already, isn't it? Well, yeah, actually, it's already, you can buy it in print from Amazon right now. Ebook came out yesterday. So we will, Correct. Uh, yeah. people can buy it now on Amazon and, uh, uh, and they can get the ebook or the print book as well. And uh, so, as I said, congratulations to you both. Uh, thank you so much for coming on Rocket Talk tonight. Thanks for having us. Thanks. This has been Rocket Talk.